All right, Inappropriate Earl. Been a big week as we were number one on iTunes Comedy. A first in the history of this podcast. Today we're number two. The King Joe Rogan is back at his rifle spot. But you know what? Number two doesn't suck either. And today I have a guest. I have not been in the room with this man since 2006 the comedy store main room i still love the idea of this show it was a pilot called one night stand up and i was lucky enough to be asked to be on it it was a dating show the girl never sees you she hears your act and this is right around the time of the duke lacrosse case so i thought everyone's going to be doing hacky relationship jokes I'm going to see if this girl likes dark humor. And I started out with the Duke lacrosse joke. And not only did the joke go so bad, the comedy store went silent, but the Laugh Factory and improv went silent. And I've been harmed by that set ever since. So this is a bit of a confessional and an apology to my guests for bombing that badly with the opportunity that he presented me. I now present to you maybe the greatest comedy mind of all time, the most famous comedy manager of all time. This guy's, if it's out there, he's done it. If it's not out there, he didn't want to do it. Mr. Barry Katz. <laughs> what, have you been smoking the African babinja weed? <laughs> that, but, uh, that set has stayed with me for 12 years. You see what's wrong with a lot of stand-up comics in general is the fact that, like, you remember things that happen in your career like that. Like, somebody in a regular world would remember the death of a family member. But I was so excited to get up in front of you. In front of me? Yeah, because, you know, you were Dane Cook's manager. The last comic standing was still incredibly popular. And I was like, wow, this is a chance to get in front of Barry Katz and, and you know, perform without going on last comic standing, which I, I wouldn't think would be a good venue for me. Because I think you have to see me for a few minutes to go, okay, I get it. And, you know, last comic standing was, you know, quicker clips of a comics act. Uh, and then I used to wear hockey jerseys on stage. And yeah, way, you were like the Kevin Smith of stand-up comedy. Right, minus the success. <laughs> <laughs> Earl, I don't know if you've noticed, but you're you're extremely successful. Well, I'm doing, you know, it's, uh, I think if I could inspire comics, it's to keep at it. You know, I went virtually 15 years with nothing. I mean, literally, I did one movie with Rob Schneider and David Spade in 2004, and that's it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of times I, I felt like quitting, and after that performance, it really harmed me mentally for a big, for a long time. Because I thought, wow, this is my shot, and I blew it. Something that most uh, people listening should know is that nothing is your singular shot it's never going to be that way unless you make it that way i i guess i would put so much you're right 
you know, like you said on the phone when we were talking, Bill Belichick failed in Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, he was a failure. He was fired. Fired coach, fired football coach. And one of the things that you said, well, he went to New England and they were a winning program. Well, no, they weren't. I think they were, what were they? God knows they had uh, double digit losses the year before he came in. Um, so, you know, anything can happen in this business. And I've seen it over and over and over again. And you're an incredibly inspirational story. And I, I really was looking forward to doing uh, this podcast with you, thankfully, at a lunchtime, because those are the only times normally when I can do anything. I do my podcast where I normally interview people during a l one lunchtime a week, and, and then I edit on Sundays to uh, probably therapeutic sessions by my sons later on in their lives uh, to think of where was daddy, but... Um, Making but, money. <laughs> but I just, I really wanted to come here because... I think you are an example of somebody who, you know, perseveres uh, so many no's that you've gotten in your lifetime. I listened to the podcast with Tommy, the former booker of the comedy store and, and those stories and all the adversity that you went through. And I, I wanted to share something with you that I think will, cause I learn a lot from, uh, my podcast which is odd because you think you're doing something to maybe inspire other people which it does but i learn a lot from it too um and one of the stories that i i really couldn't wait to share with you was that of uh i interviewed rita rudner and she said that i could i could interview her but i had to go to laguna of all places on a weekend so i i took a day trip and I enter like God knows how many gates there are to this property. Uh, it's a palatial mansion overlooking the ocean. And we sit down and she slides over a CD of her daughter uh, with a guitar in her hand or something, you know, musical, a musical CD. And her daughter's a teenager. And she said, you know, I had a conversation with my daughter about her career. I said, what did the conversation go like? She said, honey, sit down here. I want to tell you a few things. Um, I can give you a guitar. I can build a studio in the house for you. I can get studio musicians to play background for you. I can hire the greatest photographer to do the art for your CD. I can have a writer come in and write the songs for you. I can set up a showcase at any place in Los Angeles and invite every music industry professional. There's only one thing I can't give you. And her daughter's like, what's that, mom? And she said, adversity. And that's something that's very, very valuable and that's why the great comics that we all know that get to the point where they get to, the reason why they're so great is because they've dealt with adversity and they figured out how to get knocked down and stand up again and keep walking. And that's what you've done. We're sitting in an apartment here that's probably worth a million dollars. You know, a couple bucks. 
that you, you know, that you bought early on or whatever, you made a smart decision, you're, you're okay. You're not, you're not going to ever be in a position where you couldn't do something to make things easier on yourself. Yeah. And I mean, so, but the point being is that you're now you're on an animated show that's extremely popular. Um, the podcast is going tremendously well and you're doing things your way. I mean, I've studied your act. Uh, I'm sorry about that. And I, 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 you don't think that I watch you and I've watched you clean shaven. I've watched you looking like Jesus Christ on the cross. <laughs> I've watched every incarnation of jokes and how they've evolved. And I know you don't think I watch, but I'm in the back of the room a lot of times. I even before this podcast, I studied your, uh, uh, your I looked at your stand up online and I thought, okay, let me find the clip that has the most views of any stand up clip you have online. That won't take long. And uh, I studied that clip and and there's always reasons why people are where they are, why it takes longer than others. And for you, I've always felt in my mind, even though I'm only one person's opinion of why I feel things take longer for certain people than others. I mean, I think in my case, uh, I, you know, for the first five or six years of doing stand-up and people would, I'm going to bring up an old client of yours. I was so proficient at doing well in bad rooms. People would call me the Dane Cook of shitholes. <laughs> like I could go into a bar where nobody's watching the comedy, TVs are on, people playing darts. And within one minute, I would have everyone turned around watching me. And I think I got too comfortable. I'm like, oh, this is, I mean, I would show up to these open mics or, bad bar shows and be treated like the king and I, I probably should have been trying to uh maybe make some inroads into the comedy store the improv and uh you know it just uh i don't think it has anything to do with that well i mean i think i i could have like you know i i wouldn't say i started with whitney but we did a lot of shows together and and she'd always be like hey let's go to canters and write and i'd be like i want to stay here and like let all these people adore me and you know i think she made the right decision i don't think it's if whitney were sitting here uh i'd say that she wouldn't agree with that it's not about that's what people always do in all walks of life they make up a story to create evidence of why things are the way they are and they go with that story and they ride that story till they can get as much mileage out of it as possible. <laughs> and that's your story. But that in my, I'm, you see, when you look in the mirror, if I could be so bold, I Please. don't want to sound like I'm some kind of, because again, I'm just one guy sitting on a, a couch here. But you're one guy, and I don't mean to interrupt, but just, you know, for the fans who may not be familiar with you, you that intro I gave you might have seemed a little over the top, but you've done things that no other comedy manager has done. I mean, the, the success you had with Dane is, uh, you know, 
it's almost undescribable and and all the specials you've gotten on the air and 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 all the a-list comics you've helped forge their careers and and some people might say well earl's kissing barry's ass it's just telling the truth and you know so your opinion is is pretty valid when it comes to this earl this is why it took you so long or or you know i was doing them i'm working on a movie now um and and sometimes when you put movies together there's investors or there's there's decks that you have to put together and these people asked me to put together a a list of you know the people that i work with and the projects that i had done and honestly you know when you when you say those things in the beginning obviously i i'm self uh effacing and i always have been uh that way but i i looked at all the people that i've worked with that when i started when they you know were at a new level where nobody knew them and working together with my talent and their talent to become household names i mean it really like sometimes you don't take a look at things for a while and it shocked me like i think there were over 20 different people and so that's always humbling when you do that and so when i see you i see a person who looks in the mirror and doesn't see what i see and i think that's one of the things about um comedians that are i would say they're not their greatest strength isn't self-evaluation um and where they are and what's going on and why it's going on there's normally a story um like i had a conversation with a client <clears throat> within the last five years i remember the conversation because it was a tough conversation they were like well how come this person's doing this 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 and this and i'm not doing this how come this person has a netflix special and i only have uh two showtime specials and an hbo special why aren't i in films as much now and in television as much as these people now this is somebody who'd done probably 20 films 10 television shows probably did over 300 hours of television and film not somebody who you know somebody's probably hosted a lot of things two hundreds of things so it wasn't somebody who was just a nobody right and a person who'd been doing comedy and working in the business at least 20 years and these are the conversations that are tough i i said uh i said that's fair I said, I want you to answer a couple of questions for me. I want you to tell me how many half-hour sitcoms you've written for yourself. Right. I want you to tell me how many films you've written for yourself. I want you to tell me how many um, sketches or unique viral videos that were written as a series of pieces for yourself you've done in 23 years and there was a pause on the phone and they said zero i said that's right zero 
Now let's name all the people that you just named. And you tell me how many half-hour comedies they've written for themselves and created. How many films they've written for themselves. How many short pieces of viral video they've done for themselves that are actually created, written, and mapped out. Right. And you tell me if the answer to any of those people you mentioned in your argument to me was zero. And you can't because it isn't. And when Amy Schumer was on the Howard Stern show and Judd Apatow heard the last few minutes of her interview and brought her in, she had that screenplay that she'd written. She might have to blow the dust off of it. Right. But she had train wreck. And we could go on and on and on and on, uh, you know, about people and what they do and how they do it. But the bottom line is, as an artist, you have to just keep going. You have to keep creating. You have to put things out there. And you have to blow people the fuck away. And you have to do it in a way that's extraordinary and not ordinary. And the trouble with a lot of artists is they see their peers do a special. There might be somebody who got a special or might be somebody who got a late night set. And you look at the material and you're like, Jesus Christ, how the fuck did that person get that? (laughs) It happens all the time. But the argument should be when you watch Chappelle, Jim Jeffries, Chris Rock, the argument should be, God, I just saw their specials. I know why they're there. I know why the fuck they're there. Now, what do I have to do to do that kind of material to get there? Not like, why the fuck does this person get a special with that material? Now, why not look to the fucking top of the mountain and see what they're doing, you know, like study greatness, imitate greatness, become a fucking great, as opposed to being somebody, oh, look at this fucking mediocre guy who has this fucking Netflix special. How come I don't get a special like that? I mean, I've thought that a few times, but... Uh... And, and that's the thing that I think people... I'm sorry I'm so passionate about I, No, I mean, this is, uh, like I said, if you didn't have the background you have, I'd be like, oh, what the hell is this guy talking about? But, like, you've gotten clients' Netflix specials. You know what they look for. and, and I've, I've been fortunate enough. You know, my, the highest percentage of anything I think I've done are specials. I think... I think I've done close to 40 specials and there's only one that I've produced that hasn't gotten on the air, um, that hasn't gotten on a major, major network. Um, can I ask why? Um, I would say without mentioning any names, it was, um, first of all, the one thing about it that was extraordinary is it was shot in a way that was never done before and has never been done since. I think the issue being the fact that the person was a relative unknown in comedy, I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think 
that if they're to do it in another year, I think uh, they'll get on the air. But I think sometimes it's cyclical and people for that hour, there are certain times when they want somebody who's unknown, like when Jim Jeffries broke and you didn't know who he was and he was on HBO. And there's other times where it's like, hey, we got to get people who move the needle. Right. And if they don't move the needle, we'll give them a 15 minute special or a half hour special. Some half hour specials are household names, but for the most part, um, that's, uh, I think how it works. And so I, I think I'm, I think I know about what it takes to get on television. I, I think I know what it takes. I've done, I think I've done over a, I, you know, I don't even know how many television deals it is anymore, but I've, I've had my opportunities. I've seen people do it well. I, even with Chappelle, who was one of my first clients who I represent for eight years. Look, I've seen tons of failure. I mean, again, if he were here, he would tell you that I think he, we did seven pilots in eight years that failed. That's, that's a lot of failure. I don't think he's complaining about the failure now because the failure, again, the adversity is what helps people get to the next level. No, I mean, uh, it goes back to Belichick, goes back to Michael Jordan being cut from his uh, high school basketball team. Uh, failure motivates me. Yeah, and so <clears throat> when I study your act, and I, I don't even know if you want to talk about this or not. Because Why not? Fuck it. Because this is a very sensitive issue to artists, and every artist, you know, their comedy is very, very um, personal. It's very personal to them. To me, it is because I'm not in the business to make money or be famous. I'm. I love doing comedy. I know that sounds crazy. Why are you in the business? But like, I get a sexual high off of stand up, for lack of a better. Sure, I want to be naked. So does your dog down there get a sexual high from oh, the ex-girlfriend's yes. sock on the floor there. She just really loves that sock. Uh, <laughs> but like, I think I'm in the business for the right reasons. Well, that is the right reason. You know, anyone will tell you Larry Moss, the great acting coach, one of the greatest in the world, and, and Leslie Kahn as well, both who I've interviewed. Um, they'll tell you, you know, it's about the craft. It's about the craft. You, 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 you become extraordinary and people will come. What's that famous movie? If you build it, they will come. Uh, it, feel the dreams. Yeah, and so that's the way it is. I mean, that's the way it is with anything. If, you're, if, you're the, if you become great at anything, people will chase you like your ass is on fire. You don't know how many calls I get. How do I get a manager? How do I get an agent? Fucking get in the clubs and and blow people away 10 times in a row go to the comedy store and when you have 10 sets in a row where every audience member every busboy every server every manager every doorman every comic that fucking hates you admits that you had the best set of the night 10 times in a row get a fucking helmet because you're not going to be without a manager or an agent much longer. Right. You know, that's the way comedy is. You know, if you're a musician, you know, I, I, and a singer, songwriter, that talk about adversity. I mean, it's like there's thousands of extraordinary, every television show you think to yourself, there can't be another great singer. And it's like, holy shit, 
what, she's 13 and she's playing a ukulele? Or she wrote all those songs or this person here on American Idol or The Voice. It's like, but if you're a comedian and you're doing material like Jim Jeffries or Chappelle and, and you're in a you're in a fucking restaurant in Bangkok, Thailand, you know, in the corner, people will find you and you will be a star. You cannot go unnoticed in stand-up comedy if you're extraordinary. It's Im- it's impossible. Do you know Earl? Do you know anyone? anyone in your entire career that when you saw them, you literally went home and sat in the fetal position. You're like, holy shit. I can't fucking believe how original, authentic, unique, powerful, and charismatic and brilliant. And the audience response they got, fuck man, I can't believe it is that person still doing open mic nights and making no money and not working in this business? Probably not. No. The problem with comedy is, is that there's, it's apparently really fucking hard to be that person. And, but if you can write a certain way and go a certain way in your comedy, and that's where I feel like where you have been, derailed it not derailed because you got a beautiful beautiful place here and you're on a great animated show the jellies and you got like the number one podcast in the free world and 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 one of the stars of roast battle and one of the stars of roast battle that's right did you go up against jimmy carr you know uh i think that might have been my downfall in roast battle was beating jimmy carr i don't think uh Certain executives dug that. Hey, man, you, you got to go up against, if you want to, what do they say? If you want to be a great tennis player, play against the best. Well, I think Ric Flair, the pro wrestler, and even though pro wrestling is fictional, he has the best saying is, you want to be the man, you got to beat the man. But, uh, you know, roast battle is something where I wish I had someone like you in my corner going, hey, uh, why is Earl getting all these tough matches? You know, well, others were. And I know it's a reality show, so it's in the grand scheme of the comedy world. It's not going to make or break you, but like I would have liked to have uh, just been treated a little better because I'm a lone wolf, Barry. At that time, I had no representation, so I, you know, I was like, "Wow, Jimmy Carr! Like, you guys want him to win the whole thing? Like, how am I getting him?" They wanted them to win the whole. Thing. I believe that. You know, they want him to win the whole thing. Because the Rob Lowe roast was the next month, and I don't know a lot about how exactly. But you tell me if I'm Earl, wrong. Like I'm telling you right now, if they wanted him to win the whole thing, Earl, he would have won the whole thing. I well, see, not I disagree with you. Oh, you do. I, in this case, beca- remember, I was in the sausage factory of last comic standing for eight years. No, I complete. Well, I think the mistake was. They only had three judges. It was um, in, in that particular battle. It was Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Rogen, and Jeff Ross. And so uh, Jimmy Kimmel and uh, Seth Rogen voted for me. So there's nothing Jeff 
or anyone could do. It's like, oh, well, we, it, it, it's over. Two out of three of the judges voted for Earl. It's done. So I think they might have, if they could do it over again, they might have like a few more judges. So that there could have been a tie and then Jeff could break the tie. And, you know, I mean, I, I felt instant hate when I walked backstage. Every executive looking at me like, you just spoiled our whole plans for this season. And I was like, well, then don't put me up against the guy. Did they verbalize that to you? Did they take you aside, the president of Comedy Central, and say, Earl, you just derailed our plans? I mean, no. And Earl, you, did anyone from the network come up to you and say that to you? N not verbally, but... Uh, okay, Earl. So again, but Barry, stories that you make up. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm a very level... I've never had a drug or drink in my life. I'm very level-headed. I think I see things... I know when someone's vibing me. The second I walked upstairs, I saw Jimmy Carr's reps huddle with Comedy Central executives, and they looked at me like I could just tell, you know. But it's like I, I told them when they offered me the, the gig, which I was very excited about because I knew if I did well, I'd be on Comedy Central five nights in six days. Whereas, like I told you, for 13 years, I had nothing. Like not one t other than one night stand up. What did Jimmy Carr say to you? Oh, I don't think Jimmy Carr cared. Like, what did he say to you? He said because I was oiled up in my leather pants. He's like, I love you, but don't hug me. I guess he's <laughs> wearing like a five thousand dollars suit. I, I mean, I don't think Jimmy cared as much as his reps or or the network executives because he was doing the Rob Lowe roast the next month. And you tell me, it wouldn't have been good cross-promotion to say, here's Roast Battle Champ Jimmy Carr. For me, I always look at it differently. And, and again, I love Jimmy Carr and his reps are, you know, he's got tremendous people in this corner. I would never have done Roast Battle if I were Jimmy Carr. I don't see the, I don't see the need to do it. I don't see the necessity to do it. You're already at the top of your game. You don't have to go on a competition reality show. I don't know what it gets you. I don't know. Even if they paid him extra money as a consultant on the side, or even if it was a favor, I don't get it. You know, it's like Jimmy Kimmel and Seth Rogen, those guys, you know, when you're judging something like that, you're just having fun and, and they're Teflon. They can do anything. They can figure out how to do anything. But you don't, in my opinion, it's a very difficult thing when you're an established person. Why go into something where you have something to lose when there's not, it's not really going to help you that much and it can only hurt you? For that gig, for you, it was something that could only help you. Oh, for it sure. It could never hurt you. So I'm not a believer in... Uh, doing roast battle if you're somebody who's more established i don't really understand the why people do it now again if i were sitting with jimmy carr i'm sure he'd give a reason why and it'd be a very good reason and and jimmy is a guy that first of all nothing can hurt jimmy because he's probably one of the most unbelievably authentic and unique comedians of the century i mean the guy is i i sometimes i'm just speechless when i think about about him but that doesn't mean that i'm as a casual observer on a couch i don't look at something and say huh, well you know i 
this thing, I, I'm not really, I don't really understand this as much as other things that you might do. Um, it's like when Blake Griffin did a roast battle with Jeff Ross. You know, there's two schools of thought here. I don't know what the deal was between Blake's people and Comedy Central and Jeff Ross. But if it's what I think it is, where Blake said, hey, listen, I want to have these writers working with me. I want to make sure this is happening this way. I want to have final cut. And if it doesn't work out the way I think it's going to work out, then I want the option of not using it. Then I would do it. And, and actually it turned out, you know, everybody has their own opinion about things, but it certainly didn't make him look bad. That roast battle he did with Jeff Ross. And it certainly was something that was a fun thing. And if he controlled it the way I think he did, then it was a positive thing. But again, I, I digress and I get away from you. Oh, no, it's not about me. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, since Rose, I have a lot of love for Rose Battle because it got me, it got me on the cartoon. It got me on the Showtime show directly. It wasn't an indirect. I mean, they, the producer of I'm Dying Up Here was like, who is this guy? And then uh, Tyler, the creator, was like, who is this guy? Uh, so I just, it being my first experience with a tv show i guess it was just disappointing to know that oh there are politics on a tv show and even though i've helped build the show it, which i was there from day one i mean literally in the room when there was two people in that room and for the first year until jeff got on there which might even be a little longer than a year people weren't coming for the battles because they were horrible they were coming for me brian moses and the dj coach t who's the quickest guy in the room so I just felt I should have been taken care of a little more. Not given things, but like, you know, when I see comics from New York who had nothing to do with the building of the show, get Ralphie May. And I love Ralphie. He was like, I mean, I, I still talk like he's alive. Uh, but like, why didn't I get Ralphie? Like, why some guy from New York who's done nothing for this show? Like, it just, that was the disappointing part. You know, didn't I get Jimmy Carr and... And even the guy got before Jimmy, Tom Ballard, a very funny Australian comic. A lot of people think he beat Jimmy. And we did an untelevised season in Montreal, you know, like a test run. It's like, why am I getting all these guys? You know, Jesus Christ, can I get like, hey, Earl, thanks for building this. We're going to give you one easy match just to like get you two nights on TV. I would have been happy with that. You have a lot of stories, Earl. But I, because I experienced this, like I, this isn't. Girl, what do you fucking want? Tomato cans put in front of you? When other people are getting them, yes, to be honest with you. You're not another person. But. You're Earl fucking Skagel. I just believe I'm a very loyal person, Barry. You do right by me. I do right by you a hundred times more. It's just how I was raised. It worked out okay, didn't it? It did, but I think it could have been better. To be honest. How could it be better? You, you're on an animated show that's got like millions of followers. But people know you got a podcast that's fighting it out with Joe Rogan. I mean, and Bill Burr and Mark Marin, and you're thinking it could be better? And I'm talking specifically in terms of my roast battle experience. When I see other people get all three seasons, whom I beat, other people with, let's just say, questionable backgrounds, uh getting all three seasons whom i beat it's like what's like I, I i don't think i'm 
being unrealistic. Like I helped build this fucking show, Barry. You know, I'm not asking to be given four tomato cans, but like when I see loyalty shown toward other people, I have a problem with that. Do you confront the source? Uh, that's the frustrating thing. I don't know who the source is. You don't know who runs the show. To be honest with you, no. I mean, I'm assuming, and you tell me, because I know Roast Battle is a similar uh, probably structure to Last Comic Standing. You guys... You don't know who the executive producers of the show I, are. But I don't know who makes the decisions. Like, I don't know... Who were the executive producers of the show? Well, I don't want to mention names on the air, but like, you know... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm. A, you tell me if I'm wrong. Here's what I think. I happened. just told you I think you're wrong. But I, okay, you, you pick the 16 names. We want Jimmy Carr. We want Sarah Tiana. We want Kay Trevor Wilson. We want Earl. Even my. I'll be honest with you. This is like therapy for me because I've never really talked about it with someone who could go Earl. This is before Rose Battle in Montreal. They had the the build up episode which is called road to roast battle and i'm really asking you this i'm being completely serious so la you had five battles everyone gets to battle a friend or a very good acquaintance except me i have to battle jesse joyce who's a brilliant writer brilliant comic he's comedy central's number one roast writer so, Barry, you tell me who they wanted to win that battle. And I just, let's say, had great strategy. And I delivered a Mike Tyson-style knockout. Right. Stop for a second. Okay. We both talk a lot, Barry. I'm sorry. No, this is great. All right. So there's five battles. Five L.A. battles. And it's basically a showcase. Okay. It's just hear me out. Tell me the five battles. There's you and Jesse Joyce. You, me and Jesse Joyce, uh, my ex-girlfriend against... Who's that? Uh, well, she gets mad when I bring her name up, so I'll just... It's, it's, it's a whole factual. thing. All right, Olivia Grace versus who she battled. Um, Olivia Grace versus... Uh, Leah K. Ajanian. Okay. Very good battler. Both very good battlers. Okay. Um, Joe Dosh against uh, a person I cannot name on this podcast because um, just I'll, I'll tell you off air about that. Okay. Um, Alex Hooper against Guy Branham. Okay. And Sarah Tiana against George Perez. Okay. So before all of these things happened, okay, and you got to promise me you're answering this really, really like you're, you don't remember history. You're going back in time before the battles. So you lay all the battles out on paper, okay? You know, every person who's on that grid thinks that they have a chance to win or thinks they're going to win. Sure. It's like, it's like that's the way. Nobody thinks normally negative. Like, not to go one step further, but like Hitler isn't combing his hair in the mirror <laughs> saying, I'm a bad guy. You know, or I, you know, or I'm not going to win, or whatever. Everybody has their own. They're the worst person to the best person has their thoughts about things. Is my example sure. probably a bad one? So you lay all those names out. Now Earl is 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 home that day before they all happen, and he's looking at these pairings. Okay, 
and you're predicting who's going to win each one. You're obviously predicting you're going to beat Jesse Joyce. Well, not really. I'm talking about the week before you're sitting in your house. Are you saying I'm going to win or are you saying I'm going to lose? Can I answer that question just honestly? A yes or no. But I can't give you just a yes or no Why question. Not? Because you don't know the things that were being said to me that week. Who cares? Did you think you were going to win or not? I'm a yes and no, to be honest with you. Was it more yes or more no? More no, to be honest with okay, you. Okay, so you thought you were going to lose. Okay. The other four you analyzed, okay? You said to yourself, this is who I think is going to win each one of these, right? Yes. Okay. Out of those four, how many came out the way you said they were going to come out? All of them, to be honest. With All you. of them, yeah. except yours. Yeah. You thought you were going to lose. But can I tell you why I thought I was going to lose? Yes. Be because it's important in the overall scope. I'm a very confident person with roast battle. I think I'm unbeatable in it because I give the performance of Kiss, but I also give the jokes too. You wear makeup? Basically. I mean, leather pants, oiled up like a wrestler, uh, you know, whatever it takes to win. But uh, that week alone, I had Jason Reitman, who's someone I look up to very much. So he's a big Roast Battle fan, made the documentary about it. Uh, he was like, Earl, we love you, but uh, he's going to kill you. Because he's known as this, this amazing, proficient writer. He writes for all the Comedy Central roast. Dave Taylor, another Comedy Store comic who's known for his bluntness, is like, Earl, Comedy Central wants Jesse to kill you because they know you're popular on the show and they think Jesse's going to kill you, so that makes him look better. So I had all these people telling me, stop. I wish you could play back what you just said. That is the antithesis, the exact opposite of what you said about you and Jimmy Carr. Comedy Central's really, you're the king here. Comedy Central's looking for this new young guy, this great guy to pick you off. That's what they want. Jimmy Carr and you. Hey, we want Jimmy Carr to win. I still believe that. So it's the exact opposite of what you're saying there and there. Why would there be two separate philosophies? But I don't think there is. It is the opposite. Young, you're telling me. New guy, pick off the guy who's favored to do things. And then Jimmy Carr and you, you're like a guy who wasn't favored to pick off Jimmy Carr. I think because I had no representation. I, it, what is representation? It's got everything to do with battle. it. You're talking... I had it's so a roast battle. There's misfits, and that's the whole thing about it. If but Jeff, everyone had managers, if and Jeff Ross would be sitting here. You, you, you know, the three guys, Watkins, and all these. These are guys who are professional misfits. But that, that's the way. They love that. That's their whole mantra. It's not about the roast battle. Isn't about the roast battle. Isn't about Goliath. It's about the underdog. I disagree. You I disagree. do. I, I mean, keep in mind, like how much I respect your comedy opinion because of your background. I was on roast battle from day one. I just know how the show operates. It was roast battle was not about, Hey, we hope Earl beats Jimmy. It'll be like Rocky or no, Jesse. But the excitement is when 
Did you see the Did you see the the McGregor uh, Khabib fight? Of course I did. Okay, you saw the undercard. Yeah. So you saw the six seven guy from Russia. Yeah, and the Black Beast, Derek Lewis. Yeah, and he's like losing the entire fight. He's the underdog. He's not even like he's getting his ass kicked. And in that last ten seconds, he beats the guy. That's what. I mean, that's what it is. That the most memorable moment of that whole three hours? Yes. But the underdog coming up at the last minute and delivering that blow, people love. I, 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 I guess I'm. I could be wrong, but I'd love to hear what Jeff Ross has to say. But yeah, but I, because I feel like the roast battle is about, you know. It's not about rooting for the number one seed. Well, I think it is. It's about rooting for the underdog. Well, I don't think it is at all. Like, okay. But I, I might be wrong. I'm just, I take it a little more personally because like I knew when my first joke landed against Jesse and his kind of fell flat, I'll never forget looking over at all the Comedy Central execs and their jaws dropped like, oh. And then the second joke, very, I just had great strategy. And you could tell in their faces, it was like, oh, fuck, we got to take this guy to Montreal. And I, I just, like in my bracket, I, I within two seconds of seeing my bracket, I was like, I'm being punished. And I know you're going to tell me, that's a, well, you're making that. When you have the two toughest battles, and you're not just your side, but your bracket, and then other people are getting literally three retarded kids they picked up at the airport, well, just put them in the finals. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I want tomato cans, but like I helped build this motherfucking show. That's a fact. Okay, were you a producer on the show? No, I was not. Well, normally when you help build a show, you're a creator and a producer. I never created it, but I helped build it. Brian Moses created the show. I've always said that. But me and him and Coach T saved it that first year and a half. That's a fact. And, that's and that. why didn't you do something to put a contract together to where you were part of things when oh. it moved forward? Uh, I can't answer that. I don't, I don't know. I just, I was just having, uh, I don't know, to be honest with you. I wasn't thinking like that. I never thought the show would get on TV, to be honest with you. I thought this show's too wacky. You know, I mean, because back in the first year or two, it was. Do you ever think positive thoughts? Oh, all the time. Because <laughs> you got to look at this podcast the first half hour. It's like, I didn't think I was going to win this. But I'm being honest. This person's against me. I don't have representation. But, you know. But it's being honest. I'm not bitter at all. Comedy Central doesn't like me. They I, want Jimmy Carr. It's like every, there isn't one thing you said in the first 30 minutes that's like a positive thought about yourself and your career. But when you have seven or eight things that were done to you, that were it, through my eyes uh negative uh you know it's not like just like one thing it's not like well they put me up against jesse joyce this is fucking crazy but you know the five people i face and once again it's a reality show i'm not acting like this is friends you know or you know mash i get the grand scheme it's you, you know you do one season and they, they move on to the next group of battlers or whatever but when it's done to you over and over and over again there is a little bit of like do i stand up for myself or am i burning a bridge and at some point i had to be like fuck this man this ain't right 
And I love Jeff. I have always given Jeff the credit of, hey, he got me on TV. Moses, he didn't have to have me as a sidekick. But it's like, hey, man, you've had people on this show all three seasons that I beat. What's, I, you know, I, I don't get that. So, I mean, it's, it's, I think if people went through what I did, they'd be a little more like, because I have most people tell me, dude, just get over it. You got on TV. You're on a cartoon. You're on a podcast. You, you know. Well, clearly you listen. Oh, absolutely. Well, but I mean like. <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, you're not listening to them. But even the podcast, I would say the first 120 episodes, 50 of them were devoted to the promotion of Roast Battle. I would have these people on who nobody else knew talk about the show. So I, you know, that's another thing. But no one else is doing that. So some guy from New York gets the tomato can after tomato can, and I'm Buster Douglas. Earl, what do you fucking have a scorecard with you every hundred percent? I'll be honest with you. I keep score of everyone who's burned me. You just keep these scorecards throughout your life, like I do. I, if Barry, if I have a uh, a personality fault. It's I take things personally, and I know where I'm in the wrong business for that shit, but I'm in it. So we shouldn't really talk about your act then. <laughs> you'll, take, you'll take it really personally, and then you'll have a grudge against me, and I'll be one of your stories. No, not at all. But I, I don't think I'm being uh, unreasonable. Like, if you got me a deal, let's say you, you get me on a TV show and we don't have an official agreement. I know this would never happen, but I'm just a wild example. Say you got me on uh, you got me on Conan tomorrow night. You did all the legwork. With my talent and their talent, I've gotten four people as cast members on Saturday Night Live with their amazing talent and my behind-the-scenes talents that I have. But say you got me and on I, SNL. And I've, and I've gotten fired after somebody became a star on the show or just got the show. I, mean, I don't like that shit. If I'd have said to somebody before, you know, if you get Saturday Night Live, I'll be representing you f until you're in a wheelchair, they would say yes, probably. But I don't do that. You know, I don't have contracts with people. I don't care, you know, if they want to work with me. That's great. And if they don't, they don't. And, you know, on, onward and upward, I want to stay friendly and I want to be. Well, so do I. But you're, you know, you keep score, man. That's I do. I'm not going to bullshit you on that. I, you know, let, let's when you're in a personal relationship with the girlfriend whose sock is in the dog thing there, is that, did you keep score with her too? No, that might seem creepy to some, but the dog loves that sock. <laughs> but does, does she know that her sock is there? We're not talking at the moment right now, so no. Is that because you kept score? No, it's a long story that I, you know, I, I don't really want to delve into on air. But this is another thing about you that's fascinating. You know, I've I've, I've done probably over three hundred interviews. I've also, on the other side, I've done hundreds of uh, interviews as well, and I've never had anybody say to me like, I, I'm I'm not going to mention that person's name. Well, and I'm this person I'm going to be mentioned, and that it's like. And Two this, or three times you've said you're not going to mention, and it's like interesting, like what's happening there. Well, in this particular case, uh, they just get upset, and you know, at some point, at like, least they're listening. That's true too, but uh, you know, I just I do keep score, and uh, you know, I, I'm probably not going to change that character trait of my personality. Like, uh, just to talk about something positive, Barry, 
Tyler, the creator, has been amazing to me. I would go through a fucking wall for him because he, there's a million voice actors he could have used who are, at the time, more qualified and more uh, higher up in the voiceover world. Uh, and he didn't. He said, I'm going to give this guy a shot. I don't know who he is. I like his voice. Uh, so that's what I mean by I'm a loyal person. And I think in the roast battle situation, I've always given it the proper uh, gratitude. But it was just disappointing that um, certain things went the way they did. And I, I can't change that. Like, I can't be, oh, fuck it. I got on TV. What's the mantra of AA? I don't know. I've never had a drink, so. I've never been in the program myself. But what's the mantra, the thing that you know when you've never been to a meeting? Uh, the 12 steps? Accept the things I cannot change. You're right. Because uh, even I know the frustration and, and all that stuff. It's not going to change what happened. You, but you, you should send those fucking Comedy Central executives a fruit basket. Every single one of them. Jeff Ross, a fruit basket. Any kind of gift. Thank you. But because of you, I'm on this great animated show. And if it wasn't for you guys giving me the chance to put me on television... I wouldn't have what I have today. I wouldn't have the number one podcast in the fucking free world if it wasn't for what you did for me. Thank you for putting me against Jimmy Carr. Thank you for putting me against Jesse Joe. It all worked out. Everything worked out the way it was supposed to. I thought you were fucking me, but look at what happened. He saw me at that time when I was on that battle, and now I'm on this show, and I'm happy. I am a working actor. I have fucking SAG and after insurance now. I do. Okay. And I'm with the number one voiceover agency. And and once again, so there are many great things, Barry. So stop. I can't. Stop with the bullshit. I, I can't, man. I just, I'm a, I'm, it's just the way I was raised. And well, then fucking deprogram yourself. It's going to take a while. <laughs> it's not going to happen overnight nothing you're saying is going to advance your career. I, I agree with you there. None of these thoughts are going to advance your career. And from what I take from this conversation, the little bit that it's been so far, there's a lot of time spent on the negative thoughts about how things were supposed to be, why they were, what happened from the past. And chances are, if it's coming out right now here in this podcast, I would gesture to say conservatively, one hour of your day is spent thinking thoughts of why the fuck did this happen? Why did that person do this? What's going there? And if that's the case, which I think it is, and I'm a pretty intuitive guy, <clears throat> that means that 365 hours of your life a year are spent thinking thoughts that are not productive when 365 hours could be used to sit down and write five television pilots, two films, and create so many other platforms for yourself, writing a book about adversity, hey, writing a book, the behind the scenes of the roast battle from the very start to the finish, 
whatever it might be, all the all the cylinders in your engine to move forward. 365 hours a year, that's a lot of hours. Divided by 40 hours, I believe that's nine work weeks. Nine normal work weeks that you could be spent working on your career as opposed to thinking about past things that went wrong or somebody fucked you, which is never going to advance your career from this point forward into future. So I think you should reevaluate and your family upbringing and, and maybe try this on for size and maybe try like AA going <laughs> one day without one of those thoughts. And maybe every time one of those thoughts goes in your mind, maybe doing this, it's kind of corny, but try it. Every time a negative thought goes in your mind, just yell as loud as you can silently cancel and try it. I know it's corny, but it will work. And then let's see how many days in a row you can string together with positive thoughts and then spending that extra hour working on writing your sitcom or writing your movie or writing your book or creating something for yourself that you'll, pr you'll be proud of as opposed to manifesting feelings from the past that you're not proud of. I mean, I can't argue with you. <laughs> and before we go on any further, we're going to stop the Instagram live because now I force people to go. And I know they're drawn into this conversation. And then you got to listen to the rest on iTunes. This we're an hour in. We're at least another hour. So there's going to be plenty more. Barry, where can people find you on Twitter and Instagram? <laughs> At Barry Katz. And the podcast is called Industry Standard. And I've interviewed everybody from Kevin Hart to Dr. Phil to David Copperfield, the president of Netflix. Uh, it's just uh, great inspirational advice from people in the entertainment business. And it's Barry Katz. He's, uh, I think he's my new life coach. So <laughs> I listen to Industry Standard, iTunes and all the usual, uh, uh, you know, it's not often I plug someone else's podcast, but I like to give back in life. I'm one of the people that he will never mention again. Oh, I will. I've often talked about you on this podcast. So guys, Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud and iTunes. But we're going to go for a little bit more because Barry is making me see the error of my ways. You can send a text. I'll keep talking. We're still on the uh, podcast. Uh, but uh, the, the Barry, this has been very, um, I feel like you're like the comedy Tony Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, from your mouth to whatever God you believes ears. But it's, uh, I, I think it's, like the things that you've done, I mean, all the specials and the movies and, you know, you were responsible for getting the roast to comedy central. So, uh, I think people, Jeff Ross and I went to the Friars club and we brokered that situation. But you know, that's another thing that people, you know, have, I have to be thankful for you because if, if the roast on comedy central don't do well they probably aren't interested in roast battle so uh you know indirectly you've helped me um I, i'm giving thanks thank you to comedy central thank you to jeff ross thank you to brian moses thank you to all the comics who talk shit about me behind my back you fuel me
I really appreciate all of you. Thank you for all the love and support you give on this podcast. When you say, why is Earl in the top 10? People accuse me of hacking into iTunes. Like, what am I, uh, Matthew Broderick and fucking war games? How about, hey, Earl could have me on the podcast. Barry, I know you're texting. I thought you were taking a break for a second. No, I can take a break if you want. Um, We're still on. Holy shit. I'm ruining your podcast. I thought you took a break when the Instagram. No, I'm still going. We're still on iTunes right now. Shit. Oh, no. All right. I'm sorry about that. No, it's all good. I mean, I can pause it if you need to text somebody. Is that legal for you to pause it just for a second? Yeah. And then we just uh, continue on. So, guys, Barry has, you know, (laughs) Barry's a fucking business guy so we're gonna pause the podcast and then we're gonna let barry conduct some business but then we'll be right back all right halftime is over on inappropriate earl barry had to conduct some business it's not like i got some piker fresh off the boat from idaho this guy's got development deals specials sitcoms got podcasts he's developing so we had to take a little break we had to also clear the negativity uh, out of my brain and thanks to Sensei Cats, I've now seen the error of my ways. And from now on, uh, starting today, it is uh, I'm looking at my Breitling watch that I bought courtesy of Roast Battle, uh, West Time Jewelers. I don't get a cut. And when I bought this watch, I was like, wow, this is a $4,000 watch. Like, I felt like king of the world. And the guy's like, hey, uh, Kevin Hart just bought a million dollars worth of watches yesterday. Relax. So that put it all in perspective. (laughs) Thank you to Kevin Hart for judging uh, my first roast battle. And David Spade as well. Thank you to Comedy Central, all the executives who've turned me down over the years. You've you've given Uh, me... uh, No, you've given me inspiration (laughs) to become a better comic. Even you, Barry, after I bombed... (laughs) You grabbed me by the arm. You looked at me. I know you won't remember this, but in the back of the main room, you're like, I love the dark stuff. (laughs) Which I still think the joke I did was one of the, a very well-written joke. It just wasn't the right for a dating show. It might've been an error in judgment. For the opener. I was just so excited. You have this, you know, your audience doesn't know this, but you have this like unique pirouette move every time you go to your chair on the couch. It's like fascinating. It's like it's just a complete like unique move. Could you explain to the audience what you're doing? Well, I'm a one man operation, Barry, as you can tell. With a $4,000 watch, you're a one man operation. No, I'm not pleading poverty. And I don't. That's 13 weeks of a good assistant. I um, get the imitation watch for two hundred dollars. Well, I you know once again, roast battle gave me something, and I just felt like I'm going to buy something really nice. That's four thousand dollars more than I am on my wrist. Yeah, but you've got you know probably a a bigger bank account than I do, so it's all good. It all works out. Everyone's happy. Who says? Who says I have a bigger bank account than you? Well, when you uh, have over a hundred developed TV shows. (laughs) 38 out of 39 stand-up specials sold uh, a, uh, a a builder and creator of Last Comic Standing of Whitney. Uh, you know, 
I don't want to get too much into your personal financing, but being Jewish, I'm assuming you're doing okay with some zeros in your bank account. Well, there are zeros. <laughs> but there's a number in front of those zeros. Now, we won't get into that. That's too personal. I uh, Nothing is as it appears uh and i and i think that's true of uh, of everybody and and there are certain people you meet that uh you know you can't believe what's happening and there's other people you meet where holy shit i can't believe what's happening and so you just gave the great example you went into the watch store you're like hey i went in here i'm the fucking king of this watch store today i'm coming out with a four thousand dollar watch and there's always somebody to ruin your day in life. That's the way it always is. And you're just buying and you're like, I feel so happy. And he's like, you're a comic? Yeah, I am. Kevin Hart came here and just bought a million dollars worth of watches. Yeah, and they're like, oh, thank you. And you walk out of there like, oh, yeah, I guess I mean, I'm not the where I'm supposed to be right now. I walked in there like Conor McGregor, you know, arms flailing, like I'm the man. I just was on TV five nights and six days. And you left there at, like you were choked out. Yeah, I left there like uh, and just I left there like Conor McGregor in the back of the head a few times. Uh, but uh, you know, my well, my mom raised me uh, in a slightly unconventional way, but uh, as my dad did as well. But she's like, Earl, there's always someone with a bigger dick in the room. Well, she would know. Well, better her than me. Uh, but that's always stuck with me. Now, for the first few years, I took her literally. I was like, wow, who has a bigger dick in here than me? Uh, I was literally looking at guys' crotches going, oh, that looks pretty big. Uh, she was from the South, so she was simple, but... Uh, how come they never say there's always somebody, you know, how come they, they don't take their daughters aside? They say, honey, there's always somebody with a smaller vagina in the room than you. Uh, well, uh, it depends what room they're in. Uh, they're an open mic. There's some big ones flopping around. Uh, but that always uh, stuck with me. Like, uh, you, you know, like I have a fair amount of bucks in the bank account, but then there's Russell Peters. Then Russell Peters. Then there's Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, the guy from Amazon. Like, so there's always someone was, you know, uh, you know, Kobe was great, and now there's LeBron. And, and you know, I'm a hockey guy, so it's, there was Wayne Gretzky, and then Mario Lemieux, and then so I'm a actually little, a little known fact that you don't know about me that nobody knows about. Let's me. get it out. I have nothing to do with this podcast, and it only has to do with your love of hockey. So in the early '70s, when I was a teenager, I had this crazy cousin who um, would take me to. Bruins games and he would uh never have a ticket he would always go outside Boston Garden and buy tickets from scalpers and he would always buy the obstructed view seats at Boston Garden the old Boston Garden but if you got there early and you waited by the fence as the fence opened to the arena you could run up all the stairways all the way to the top and the center and go down the stairway and they allow you to sit in the stairway at the very end where the pole was where you you know to stop somebody from falling over at the old boston garden they allowed that and so we'd get there an hour and a half early and watch the warm-ups of in, in just so we could see bobby Orr and phil esposito and 
you know, all those great people that uh, were on the Bruins, Jerry Cheevers, and and that was a big part of my life back then. Terry O'Reilly. Terry O'Reilly. That was the later incarnations after that in the late 70s, but who made one all-star team, Terry O'Reilly. Um, but I have I wanted to talk to you about the continue the thing about why people are where they are in comedy and why they're not. And I don't want to focus in on why uh, people are on television who do certain bits of material and you wonder why they're there and what's happening. And in any profession you're in, anybody listening, doesn't matter what you're in, even if you're in the law firm and you there's 68 people that work at the law firm, there's the guy who's the number one name on the door, and then there's the person who's getting coffee for people who's number 68. And you always have to be in a situation where you're cognizant of where you stand. One of the things about you that I have a lot of respect for you that maybe people don't give you enough credit for, you are a prep and study and understanding guy and strategy guy when it comes to roast battle. Absolutely. I don't, I'm not going to say if it, I would gesture to say you don't use that formula in every area of your career. And if you did, um, <laughs> I'd be further along. Be a different result uh, at this stage of the game, probably. But, with podcasting, I do. And with podcasting. So the two things that you apply that intensive preparation and you not only do the preparation but in the roast battle you think to yourself okay what am i going to do if he hits me with this even if he never hits you with that you have the line for that you have the line for that the line for that the rolodex so you know where you stand and then you go over and over again in your head to where you're never shy of the line but when you're standing there this is another thing you do that you might not realize or the audience might not realize you make the audience believe for a split second that you have no fucking idea what you're going to say next. <laughs> so you give them the thought process, the extra split second or two where they're wondering, uh-oh, he's a dead man up there. Right. So you take them on that journey. It's like that joke that I love to use the Jeff Ross joke, a clean joke that I always loved he did that takes you on the ride and you're wondering like, okay, is this going anywhere? And the joke was, you know, he's rubbing his stomach. He's saying, I made a new year's resolution. I'm going to work out today. I'm proud to say I went to the gym for 45 minutes on the bike. And tomorrow, if I feel really, really good, I'm going to start peddling. <laughs> And so he takes you on that thing where you don't even know if there's going to be a joke. And that's where the, the right. joke lands. For you in the roast battle, you stand there with that look on your face that appears that you are not going to be able to come out with a knockout punch. And that makes that knockout punch even stronger. So there's all these strategies with the podcast. There's strategy in what you're doing, which is great course having me on probably was a bad strategy but, not at all but uh but so but in other areas so i want to talk about why 
certain comedians might not get to where they want to go as quickly as they want to. Earl Skagel. So I took it before I came here. I took, I made it a point to study your most viewed stand-up set on YouTube. And it's a stand-up set from probably two or three years ago. It's about 20 minutes long. So opening up for Jeff. Uh, opening up for Jeff and uh, Irvine. In Irvine. You have a full beard. Um, a motorhead shirt on. A motorhead shirt on. And uh, I should say before I tell you this, that you did a great job. And the audience was with you. And they loved you. And they enjoyed your comedy. But I sense a butt coming. So, but I just want to share with you things. Sure. Joke by joke. Oh, Jesus. All right. So this I'm going to tell your audience joke by joke what the theme of the joke was. Okay. Number one, pornography. Number two, anus. Number three, gay. Number four, gay, park in the rear. Number five, sleep with guys. Number six, Tony Robbins insulting him and telling him he has a horse face. Seven, teabagging somebody who's 315 pounds. Eight, balls in your face. Nine, gay Jenner joke. Ten, uh... I uh, look pretty good for a guy with AIDS. <laughs> 13. Uh, doctor holding my balls and cough. Um, kissing me. 15. Vaseline up your butt for an examination. So the first 15 jokes that you told were all lowest common den denominator yes. jokes. All jokes that have to do with things that are easy laughs gay your butt anus teabagging <laughs> shitting on somebody who's more famous than you uh pornography vaseline uh you know gay people just all jokes that are easily told by anyone in the population parking in the rear i mean it's like these are these you're a brilliant guy and i look at you and i i'm seriously and i'm sincere when i tell you you are a brilliant man you are a very unique artist and you've been doing it a long time indeed and you know what comedians do the material that you really respect and love and you know the ones that don't. I don't expect the guy who's been doing it at the time, probably 12 or 11 years, to roll out with 15 jokes in a row that anyone can do in terms of that subject matter. When I know that he's capable of writing extraordinarily unique point of view jokes that don't have to do with menstruation, fucking uh gay vaseline up the ass pornography uh you know it's like tea bagging it's like you're a brilliant guy and so when i looked at the material at that point in time 
you know, and you were killing and the audience loved it. And I'm not saying they didn't love it. But if an, as an artist listening today, you want to know how you get to the next level. I do. You get to the next level doing material that no one else can do. When you see Jim Jeffries doing it, a 12-minute gun control bit, I mean, or you see him doing the bit of Oscar Pistorik. I hope I pronounced that properly. Pistorius. Pistorius with no legs, dragging himself across the floor to murder his girlfriend at the time in a bathroom you literally are watching the special going holy shit i cannot fucking believe what i'm seeing and i've never seen anybody do anything like this before and that's what extraordinary greatness is in stand-up and if you can write that kind of material with the topics that nobody talks about and I know what every comic listening might say. Well, you know, this guy's done this Netflix special and there's a whole chunk of material on there. Hey, Chris Rock's four special, he did 10 minutes of Michael Jackson material. You know, he's doing Michael Jackson material. Why can't I do Michael Jackson material? Because he's paid his fucking dues. He's done three specials that are on the top of the fucking mountain. Even the last special, the guy, the guy, he's like trading spaces. Remember that show where the guy would say, okay, we're going to gut this room, but that lamp there, right. we're going to use that as our inspiration. Takes one word, tambourine, and he creates a incredible routine about relationships and how it relates to the tambourine. Earl Skakel, how many comedians have you heard in your entire career do a routine that comparing a musical instrument, an obscure musical instrument, to the relationships between men and women? Not many. Not many. How many people have you heard doing gay jokes? A few. How many people? A, a lot. Hundreds. How many people have you heard doing Vaseline up the ass jokes? Hundreds. How many people have you heard tell a joke about an anus or teabagging? Well, in my or, defense, the teabagging story did happen to me. Okay. All right. I'm just saying in that particular one. So the point I'm trying to make is that you have to look at the evidence of what's you're creating no one can create earl skakel's life except for earl skakel and so look i i watched chappelle my chappelle invited my son and i to see him at radio city music hall about a year ago and representing him was one of the the greatest greatest joys of you know my entire life just an amazing guy and you know still to this day will take care of me and my fit do anything it's just incredible and we go there and it's the night after charlottesville charlottesville yeah and he goes on stage he walks out to six thousand people at radio city music hall who probably waited months for this moment to to see him roll out with the material he's been working on because, of course, no comedian 
in the history of the world after one joke is on television ever does it again. So they're coming to see this new Chappelle thing. And he gets on stage and he lights a cigarette. The only guy in history probably can light a cigarette in a place where you can't smoke. And he says, I want to apologize, everybody. I know you're looking forward to hearing uh, the material I've been working on, but Charlottesville happened last night and I feel like I have to talk about that. And for the next 30 minutes, this guy is doing material that he, he's never done before on a topic that no one's doing material on. And he's doing 30 minutes in the crowd. It's like Def Jam. They're jumping out of their seats. They're high-fiving people. They're davening like rabbis at the Western Wall. Okay? It's like crazy. My 13-year-old son is going, it's, it's, it's incredible. And there comes a point where you can tell he's finishing and winding down that bit in 30 minutes. And he sits at his stool. I'm sorry, he stands at the stool and he takes out another cigarette and lights it and smokes it. And then he does a joke that I believe was on one of the Netflix specials. And this was the joke. Uh, uh, I'm paraphrasing. I'm getting old. I'm, you know, 44 years old. Guys, you ever been in bed alone and you're in your room and you're under the covers and you start jerking off and halfway through you just say, fuck it, I'm going to sleep. Does that joke? Then he does 30 minutes of the most brilliant, unbelievable material, you know, I could ever imagine a comic doing. Thank you. Good night. And after the show, he has somebody come get us. We go backstage. He spends an enormous amount of time with us right away. There's like 200 people there. And I'm like, I, I just so, so humbled by what he's done and how great he was with my son. But I said, Dave, you know, you know, I, I always like to ask questions and I, I, I have to ask you this question. You, you, you do the 30 minutes on Charlottesville. That's like you've never done before. It's killing. You do the other 30 minutes of the stuff you've been working on. It's incredible. You get a standing ovation, but in the middle, you do that one joke that let's face it. You and I both have heard a variation of that joke. A hundred times. Right. Why did you do that joke there amongst all this brilliance? And he said something to the effect of this, which I always loved the way he was. And when I'd ask him a question and I can't do his voice, but he did something, he said something like, Barry, man, sometimes I like to do a joke for me and i looked at him and i said you earned that joke and a million more oh for sure because he's put out probably over seven hours of material so if he wants to do a joke that he finds fun then so be it but you're not Chappelle yet no. You're not Chris Rock yet. No. 
So when you're putting material up for people to see across the world, you don't roll out with 15 jokes in a row that are beneath you in subject matter. And that, in my humble opinion, is what separates the people who are extraordinary from the people who might be extraordinary like you, which I do believe you are extraordinary, but I believe in the comedy, you sometimes go to the ordinary. And in this case, 15 times in a row. And I think with somebody of your mental capacity, your intellect, and your brilliance, I think you can do better than that. And I think when you decide that you you can still be dark, like that joke you opened up with at the uh, at the. Uh, can I tell you the joke again? I, I'm sure you have forgotten it. Can I just tell it to you right now? Yes, I haven't forgotten it because it's it was about some some um, some case or something. It's some- the Duke Lacrosse case, and I. I was like, hey, everyone, you know, it's the Duke lacrosse case. Uh, The captain of the team had a degree in economics. So if anyone knew 47 didn't go into two, it was that guy. (laughs) Yes. So that's an original. Yes. That's an original joke. It's a dark joke. It's a risky joke. But compare that joke to all these 15 jokes and, and people will see it on YouTube. They'll know what I'm talking about. That joke trumps all these jokes. It won't. If you did that joke, if there was a something that happened today, and you did that joke there, that joke wouldn't do as well as all those other jokes, the fifteen in a row. Right. But you're doing something unique and original. You mentioned Whitney Cummings. What are Whitney Cummings' first jokes? Um, you know, you can do blue humor. If you can figure out a way to make it really, really smart, and then it will propel you. Like Whitney Cummings, this is the joke I remember. She said, uh, she said relationships are hard. Guys, uh, they always say, you know, marriage is like prison. Marriage is like prison. I say no, because in prison, you get to have anal sex. <laughs> And so, again, she's doing a joke about that has a punchline with anal sex. Right. Which hundreds of people have done a joke on anal sex. But look at the construction of the joke and how it is and the, and the smartness behind it and the intention behind it and the theme. And in my mind, that's okay. That's okay when you're doing something like that right. in your set because to me it's it's a you know it's not a joke for everybody but it's a smart joke sure and so when i look at you thinking okay i went all these years and nobody gave me the time of day and i didn't get where i wanted to go and tommy at the comedy store he didn't give me the spots and other people were getting spots that you know he, he gave this. weed to yeah again there you go again sorry i'm sorry barry I, listen it ain't rome ain't gonna change in a day all right so 
whether he gave spots to people who gave him weed or not, the fact is Chris Rock went on whenever he wanted to go on. You know, Chappelle went on whenever he wanted to go on. Why? Because they were extraordinary. It didn't matter if they sold them weed or stole weed from them. <laughs> they were on. Right. You know, Chris D'Elia gets on all the time. Now, people might say, well, you know, in the beginning he was doing this and that or whatever. But the bottom line is there's something happening. And it can't be denied. There's something happening. So whatever anybody wants to say about Chris D'Elia and I have great feelings about him and I was honored to work with him and Whitney on the Whitney show. He's great to me. He's a guy who there's something great happening. Really great. Would he sit here and say that he's Chris Rock or Chappelle? I, I don't even know him as well as, you know, probably a thousand other people. But I'm pretty sure if I'm a betting man, he would say, no, I'm not. I'm not there yet. But there's something undeniable happening. You know, and there's people that go on at the comedy store that you see and you're like, why is this person on this show? Every comedy club you go to in the world, you say, why is this person on the show? It happens everywhere. So why focus on, why focus, why did that lawyer get the promotion and I didn't get it? Why did that guy who I work at the 7-Eleven with, why did they get the manager gig and I didn't get it? You know, it's it, there's always going to be situations like that, but if you work on what you're doing and you really take the time like you have with the podcast and the roast battle, you're going to rise. And that's the way it is. And as a stand-up, you have all the tools in your toolbox to rise. You know how to construct the joke. You know how to set it up. You know the timing. You have cast iron timing. Amazing timing as a comedian. You're smarter than most comedians. You're more well-educated. You have more emotional intelligence than a lot of comedians. Although in the first part of this podcast, that could be argued. But the point, <laughs> but the point being is that you know what will get you where you want to go as a stand-up. You know exactly what it takes. And you may say, no, it doesn't. This guy saw this guy do an hour and he did it and it's working for him. Yeah, but you're not him. So forget him. Let's just concentrate on on the examples of the people that who you respect. For everybody listening, it doesn't matter what profession you're in, look at the people in your game that you respect and that you honor and that you look at and you're like, "Oh, wow, I wow. I I would love to have that kind of career." And take it do it. Make it happen. Doesn't matter if you're an intern, wherever you are, find your affiliation wherever it is and work your way up the ladder doing the right things. 
that are going to take you where you're going to go fastest, not as a shortcut. It will be a shortcut because you will pass people like a fucking rocket ship. But it's because you did the right thing. I'll give you an example, Earl, and maybe this is bad, and maybe you'll jump over the couch and strangle me. No, I would never do that. Tell me how many stand-up television sets you've done in your life on national television. Zero. Zero. Tell our audience how long you've been doing stand-up. So long, it's almost hard to give an exact... uh, 18 years? 18 years, okay? So I'd like you to tell me anyone you know in our business that's been doing comedy 18 years, that's doing material using Chris Rock, Jim Jeffries, Chappelle, those kind of artists. Gaff again, let's let's put him because he's clean. He does a clean show because all those people are in varying degrees of what they do and, and how they do it. So let's take those people. You got Jim Jeffries, who's extremely edgy. Right. You got Chappelle, who's in and out of edginess and talks about race. You have Chris Rock, who can do a clean set. He can do a edgy set. He can talk about race, politics, very political. And then you have Gaffigan, who's Midwestern clean. So you tell me, Anyone you know that's been doing comedy 18 years that doesn't have a set on television that's doing a variation of that tone of comedy. I mean, I know a lot of people who've done it. Who've gone 18 years without doing a television. Oh, I don't know anyone. That's right. You don't know anyone. And that's the answer. There isn't anyone. Everyone has done a television set who's doing the material that is so undeniable that they just can't be denied. And again, going back to this one set in your uh, in your 15th year of comedy, Mm -hmm. which is a set that's one of the few sets that's up there on YouTube. And it's a set where you're killing you're rolling out with 15 jokes that not one of those four people I mentioned on the present day Mount Rushmore, maybe a few of them would ever do any tone of joke that now don't get me wrong. Chappelle now, he just, I think he just opened up a a, a special where he talked about San Francisco being the, uh, the, uh, I don't know if he said it was the anus of the, but he talked a lot of gay jokes, a right. lot of stuff in the beginning of special. But, you know, when you get your $60 million check, you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah, I haven't gotten that uh, one yet. And so I know it's hard because you sit here and you say, my idol, a guy who I love, Dave Chappelle, is opening up his special and he's doing the San Francisco gay thing, which probably has been done a lot. And he's doing these things about, you know, gay jokes and here and there in the beginning of the special. And, and Jesus, you know, why can't I do that? It's because he's already done six and a half hours of other stuff that earns him the right to do that. Oh, for sure. And so for comics out there and especially for, you know, anyone can make, I was there. Look, 
I was there in the front row 33 years ago when Andrew Dice Clay was introduced by Rodney Dangerfield at Dangerfields. I was there for that taping. I saw him before that video went out to the world. And he had his lane. He had his character. The material was dirty. It was unconventional. <laughs> but that was his lane. That was his whole persona, his whole character. Now you might say, well, why can't this be my character? The reason being is because you're up there looking like a regular guy. Now you might say, I look like a guy who films pornography or whatever, but the point is you're an everyday man. I'm sitting across from you. You're a great looking guy. Oh, thanks, man. Um, you're, you're, you're in great shape. You got a great mind. You're, you're just, you're, you have a great presence about you. So I don't look at you like as a character of the game. I don't look at you as like Larry the Cable Guy doing his thing or... <laughs> That's good. Or, you know, or Dice doing his thing. I look at you as a guy planting his feet and delivering joke after joke after joke. And if you want to do Fallon, you want to do Kimmel, you want to do Conan, you can't do those jokes. And if you want to do your hour special then you got to put together jokes. If you want to do blue humor, you got to put them together where they're uniquely, powerfully original with interlocking themes that take you in directions that you don't even know they're going to be and what's going to happen from them. And I think that's where you think a lot of times, well, I shouldn't have worked in these clubs. I should have gone to the comedy clubs earlier. I should have done this when this person... No. It, it, there's no should of anything. If you're writing the right kind of material, then there's no should of anything. There's no wrong answer because by the time you go up and you do it, people are going to be like, what the fuck happened? Look, uh, people have a lot to say about Gerard Carmichael. Of course, you know, I don't know if it's jealousy or whatever it is. Probably. But the fact is, this young kid was going on at the improv, and people were running into the comedy club to watch him like they'd run in to see a tale at the comedy cellar at the end of the night. Why are people running into a room to see somebody? That means there's something happening. There's something going on. That's the universal sign that something's happening positively. Sure. I used to go see Sam Kinison close the shows at the original room at the comedy store 30 years ago. And, you know, it's weird. I look in the mirror before I came in here and I thought to myself, you know, I don't feel like I've been around this long, but, right. but I have been. And Sam, watch those sets on television of Sam. And you know why... He was who he was. Watch Louis Anderson. You know, there's a lot more to Louis Anderson than to holding the microphone and pulling it, you know, to the side and say, let me get this out of the way so you can see me. You know, there's, there's so much substance between him and his father. And then what does he do? He creates an animated show that wins three Humanitas shows in a row. 
And then he goes 14 years or 13 years without getting a significant acting job until Louis C.K. and Zach Galifianakis say, you know something, I think you could play this role, my mom. And he wins a fucking Emmy Award. That talent never goes away. It just never does. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. And, and everybody will have their moment. You're having your moment now. You're having a great moment. People are tuning into you. They're not tuning into the podcast for me. They're tuning in for you. Today, I looked on the, the, the podcast right number two in the fucking world. I'm not tuning in for your guests. Yes, it's a nice cherry icing on the cake. They're tuning in because they love you. They love the work you put in, the preparation. They love how you listen. They love how you don't interrupt. They love how you get stuff out of the guests that you might not get other places. That's all you, Earl. And if you think, if I had to compare these first 15 jokes to your podcast, what would you say? It's a big difference. What's the difference? Well, like you said, I think, uh, well, I mean, I, I will say this. My, you know, when you're opening up for a big comic, the pressure to not bomb in front of them for me is extraordinary because you want them to just walk out. I mean, Jeff's going to do well whether I bomb or kill, but I feel as an obligation to him for him saying, Hey Earl, would you open for me? And it's like when I opened for Rob Schneider for four years and that was really my first taste of success in, in terms of, Oh, there is a good side to this business. My God. I mean, I, I knew they were all there to see him. I was under no illusion. But, but uh, they chose you. Oh, absolutely. But I felt... They an- chose you. Thousands of comedians they could have picked open up for them. They chose you. Sure. But I still felt an obligation to be like, I want to do well for Rob, for Jeff. Uh, you know, for you know, just out of, out of that fact that you could have had anyone. Rob could have just picked a local opener in Winnipeg. Instead, he flew me on his own dime and, and gave me great sage advice you know because he sensed uh i think like you do maybe uh discontent at the time i was working with him he's like dude just become so good they can't deny you you know i i I honestly want to drop the mic here it's like because i would like you to say that again for your audience don't look at the clocks no no i i'm just making sure everything i'm not i'm looking at the clock just to make sure we're you know we're copacetic and we are very copacetic. I, I, like I said, Barry, if I had a producer, I'd be like, how's everything looking? I don't. I just want to see you get up and do that pirouette again. Here we go. See, it's the wires cross, so I have to go like this. And when I say don't look at the clock, I'm not saying it like don't look at the clock because I'm worried about the time or I'm worried about you ending the show. That's not why I said that. I want you to be in this moment. because I am in, in the great moment. moment. But it's a great moment. Say what he said again. Rob Schneider said to me when we've taught, let me just set it up because I was, uh, I had auditioned for Montreal New Faces several years in a row. Didn't get it. Now the first year I was good, but probably didn't deserve to get it yet. 
Second year, I killed. Didn't get a call back. Third year, I killed again. And I rarely kill. I mean, I'm being honest. I do well most nights. But I, for whatever reason, always do well on a showcase or whatever. And uh, so I get the call back. Two people bombed on the showcase and ended up getting Montreal. And I was told to back channels. Well, you know why they got it over you. You deserved it, but they have management. And so I wouldn't have these conversations with Rob. Hold on, hold on. And Rob said, dude, doesn't matter. If you were that good, they would have picked you. So I owe a lot to Rob Schneider for imparting that wisdom of become so good, Earl, they can't deny you. And I'm seeing that with the podcast. I'm seeing that uh, to uh, a relative degree with the cartoon, the jellies, uh, because it then got me. The producer loves me on the jellies so much that she said, you should be with this particular agency. They're number one in the voiceover field. Point being, I was so good in her mind, I needed to be with this agency. So I am agreeing with you. Yeah, and, and she... And she... Thank you, Patty. She made that call. 100%. For this is what's so incredible about our field that you can't even believe sometimes. Okay, you're hired on a great show for an integral role as well as probably many sub roles that you probably voice as well maybe or, or. to be you know i'm not going to bullshit you barry my voice is so deep uh, that i can really only do berry jelly uh, that's okay i like the name <laughs> so so but the point being is that normally in the world there's people at agencies all over the world in this country, their only job is to find great voice talent that can make their company money and to create opportunities for those people to thrive to where they build their book of business. You book a role on a show with a creator who's got God knows 4 million followers and no one calls you and says, you know, I heard you got this gig. Could you come in and meet with our company? Not even Ed's agency. Okay. So there's a lot of things about our business and other businesses that don't make any sense. But if you create great relationships, you have a backup plan. Yes. And the backup plan is, well, if they don't come after me, even after I booked this and proven myself to do great work, if I am a great person and not an asshole and I get there early and I stay late and I treat everybody like they would want to be treated, somebody's going to say something nice about me to one of these places and I'm going to get what I want to get. And if that doesn't happen, then I'll go out on my own and reach out to these places and find one that's passionate about me. So it's not just one end to something when you do great work. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of different uh, avenues you can go to get where you want to go. Sure. I mean, you look at Whitney Cummings and maybe this is a story that maybe she wouldn't want me to tell, 
but it's factual. And then it's that you say they got this because they had a manager. Now, I was a guy who was known probably for one thing above anything else. This guy has an eye for who's going to do well. I'd say that would be my running theme of positivity that's, you know, I don't want to get into all the negative things people might say about me. But the positive thing was there's no denying that I could meet a young comic and they many times would make it. Whether it was a coincidence, you know, they say, you know, once maybe a fluke, twice lucky, three times, ah, anything can happen. But when it happens 20 times, there's something going on. Right. And so, and I had a great relationship with Comedy Central. I'd done a lot of things with them. I booked a lot of comedians. And I uh, had Whitney showcase three years in a row for... Uh, back then it was called premium blend. It was like a, um, a, a stand-up show for young comics for their first, normally their first television appearance, sometimes second. Right. And they do 13 episodes of that show, five comedians, and they passed on Whitney three years in a row. So that's 195 slots that they gave away to somebody who had a manager who had people who was getting booked on late night shows and all different things and sitcoms and hour specials. And it wasn't like I couldn't get anybody in the room. Wasn't, I couldn't influence anybody, but they just weren't seeing it at the time. And then Whitney got a job writing for the roasts. And she told me that she wanted to be considered for on camera for the roasts. And I knew uh, an old bud of mine, Tom Arnold, was doing a, uh, a roast at like the Hilton or something for charity. And they were filming it for archival purposes. It was, you know, and it was Peter Berg, I think was the person being roasted. And I asked him if he would do me a favor, relationships, relationships. If he would put this unknown girl on for five minutes on this charity thing. And he trusted me. And she went on and she killed. And I had the tape. And I did something that is probably not always recommended. Because I'd gotten passes from everybody at Comedy Central. And I decided this time I'm going to send the video to the president of the network, Doug Herzog at the time, who, by the way, was my first podcast guest ever. Relationships. And I heard through the grapevine from the people in the office 
that after he watched it, he sent the video clip to everybody or a lot of people there, or maybe it was in a meeting. And he said, how come we don't have people like this on our network and the roasts? I want her on the roast. And so I got the call that she was booked on the Comedy Central roast of Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> and it was a really exciting moment, and it was a great time, and, and, and Whitney deserved it. She put the work in. Then a month before the roast, I got the call saying, uh, we're not going to be able to give her the roast. We're going to, unfortunately, um, she can't do the Larry the Cable Guy roast. I'm like, why not? Uh, Larry just wants his own people. Um, can't do. I said, well, I'd like you to send me something in writing that tells me that she's going to do the next one, which was very fortuitous. Timing. You think that things aren't going your way. You get bummed out when somebody takes your legs out. But that gave Whitney an extra year to work her chops, to become a better comedian to work hours and hours on her writing and her stand-up to the point where the next guest was announced, Joan Rivers, and that was the perfect guest for her to roast. And again, when she rolled out with one of those first lines, Joan, I, I loved you in The Wrestler. <laughs> Four seconds. How many people can tell a four-second joke and kill with it? And she destroyed that roast. She had the best set of the night that night. And then she was offered her own deal for her own scripted show at Comedy Central. I negotiated very hard her own hour special, which they didn't want to give, but I got when she had never even done five minutes on television. And again, the writing, the tenacity, the perseverance, and putting it together like that, it's all a metaphor for how things work and how they work in the world. There isn't anybody listening to this podcast that knows Whitney Cummings that could probably name one to three people who work harder than Whitney Cummings. Oh, I'm, I can't think of anyone. I mean, I always used to say Whitney Cummings is the kind of person who literally would be in the shower. You could visualize her in the shower with her phone in a Ziploc bag, just doing her business when she's in the shower. Oh, 100%. And this is why Whitney Cummings never stops working. It's like the work ethic. And again, in the beginning, she would probably, again, if she were sitting here, she would say, well, I'm not as proud as the material in the beginning of my career as I have been lately. But that comes with time because she leapfrogged over so many people and became somebody who had stand-up on television after probably only six years doing it or seven years doing it. We all know it's a 10-year plan. And, and at least a 10-year plan. 18 if you're smart about it. 
Well, you got a long 50-year career, my friend. You're going to do really well, great. I don't know if I want to be doing stand-up in my mid-90s, but I'll fuck it. I'll do it. This is one thing that you should look at, and I think a lot of people should look at. A lot of times they look at the length of time they've been doing it, and they look at that and they weigh things of what's happened or how it's not happened. But I think for you, I think the most exciting thing to look at is let's look at the last two years. Oh, absolutely. So if you were to start your career two years ago. Oh, I wish. Okay. And you were to just judge your career on what's happened the last two years. Anyone would say, oh, fucking things are yeah. going pretty well for this fucking guy. I can accept that. I agree. I feel like uh, going to the gym right now. <laughs> I, clearly, when you look at me, I should you be You look good. Naked, I look like a bag of onions. What are you talking about? I mean, listen, I, I try not to visualize what you look like <laughs> naked. No offense. I mean, how often do you go, let's get about you. Like, <laughs> how often do you work out? I swim occasionally. So occasionally means a few times a month. If I'm lucky. And I, I, I know it looks like I'm... You're I, maintained. You got a full head of hair. That's true. You got the Don Johnson stubble. Uh, thank you, I think. As Jeff Ross would say, this is my forever 41 outfit. <laughs> and I owe Jeff a lot. Let's just get some gratitude out there. Yeah, that Breitling watch. I, you know, I really do. I did this. I would not be wearing this Breitling watch. That watch could land planes. I love it. You could see that watch from a satellite photo. Well, I like big things because I'm a big guy. I'm big boned, Barry. You don't seem big. Of course, you've told me your penis is bigger than mine during this episode. So I don't believe I have, but it is. <laughs> God, I love that confidence. That's my fantasy of getting a special, let's say Comedy Central. Let's just mend fences with Comedy Central. And I get that billboard on Sunset and La Cienega. I want the billboard to be the dick pic, but with the Comedy Central logo over the, over the you know. It's going to have to be a big logo, Barry. Trust me on that one. I'm sure the graphics department can work on that. Well, I, I hope they're, uh, but, but that would, see, I want to do something different. Do you remember the Ralphie Mae joke right before he died? He said that he, he, uh, you know, he was happy the way he was because in the times where he was with a woman that he loved and he was together with her, it was like two bodies together as one. And then his, you know, black comic friend said, what are you talking about? You don't want some five or six inch penis to have that. You want the big... 10 inch or you want to be go that's what they love you to give her a little bit of pain doing whatever and ralphie in his amazing timing paused on stage after he imitated the person and pretended like he was looking at the guy talking to him and said well con congratulations on your four inches of dry dick ralphie was the best Last thing he asked me to do before he died was to go fishing with him. And I'm like, you are got to be kidding, Ralphie. I'm not getting in a fucking boat with you. 
There better be a pace boat that I can be either behind or in front of you, but I'm not getting in the same boat. Maybe he meant he was going to be floating on his back and he wanted you to be on top of him with a pole. I only can say that I wish everyone were like Ralphie. I can't count how many comics he's helped. And uh, he would he would talk to me very much like you have this last two hours of uh, don't get down on the business. Uh, let me get you out of L.A. And, and get your road work. He's helped more comics, and, and he didn't have to. Like, And uh, so we all love him. I loved, Barry, I loved Ralphie so much. An amazing man. I loved him, too. I would have jumped into the coffin with him if there was room. So, uh, but, the you know, it was an open casket just because they couldn't shut it. Um, but we also have to look at certain things, and again, if Ralphie were here, I would say these things. I have a rule. I, I would never say anything unless the person were here. And Absolutely. I could say I don't. Um, but look, how many overweight, really overweight people live long lives? So, not many. You know, this is what's difficult to see in our business too, is we see a lot of people when we walk through the hallways of comedy clubs that we know are dying. Now it could be argued existentially that we're all dying. But what I mean is that there's a lot of people walking through those hallways that are accelerating the process sure. of death. And they're either drinking themselves to death or doing drugs or eating themselves to death or they're just self-destructive people, you know, that have things that they do over and over again. Like when you had Tommy at the comedy store, a former manager, talking about Eddie Griffin and how he'd go on and, and do like hours and hours every night. And, and you know, he was being not only self-destructive against himself, but he was being self-destructive in the community. And so that doesn't always get you where you want to go as quickly as it can. And so that's why I, I tell you, like with, like with Ralphie, it's not a, you know, when, when you hear the news, Ralphie May just died. Again, I would say this if Ralphie were sitting here. You're not sitting around with your friends saying, what a shocker. Right you knew from the moment you met him that he was chasing death. Yeah. You know, I had the amazing um, honor of spending a lot of time with Farley at Saturday Night Live in the hallways and a lot of comedians on the show. And there's just no doubt in your mind that the guy wasn't going to live a long life. But there wasn't anybody that made me happier. He's one of the few examples, and Ralphie is another one. You know, you raise your kids, if you have kids out there, and you raise them, you've always heard this expression throughout the years from your parents and your grandparents, don't hang around with the wrong crowd. Hang around with the good crowd. Ralphie, Farley, Greg Giraldo, 
were three examples of people, technically speaking, they were the wrong crowd to hang out with. But there isn't anybody in the world who was sober, straight, didn't do any drugs or did them or anything in between that didn't want to be around those people. Right. As Jay Moore would say about Chris Farley, and I will use this to talk about Greg Giraldo and also Ralphie May, he used the quote, a wrecking ball of joy. Yeah. And so, but sometimes in life, you know people are killing themselves. You can't do anything about it, but you still want to hang with them. You still want to be there as long as you can. And those were people like that. And they're, and our business is filled with those people and they know who they are. Those listening who know about comedy, we all know who they are. And, um, there's nothing you can really do about it. They have to do it for themselves and they have to make changes and, um, and you, you pray that they do and they will. Yeah. I mean, with Ralphie, I, just I don't think he wanted to get better and you know it's just like you can't be fucking 600 pounds and and you're 20 pounds overweight it's a lot of work on your heart if you're literally 400 pounds overweight it's just like it's gonna catch up to you and you know Geraldo had his demons different ones and I mean I've in the 18 years I've done comedy I've probably known 10 friends or acquaintances who committed suicide or died just because they didn't take care of themselves. And you almost don't get sad anymore. You just expect one or two comics to die every year, unfortunately. But uh, it's a side effect of the business. Do you think it has to do with like constant rejection? And even if you're successful, you get rejected. No, like when I was coming up the stairs, I I shared with you one of the one of the gifts that it'd be great if, if people, everybody embodied this is no matter what you're going through in life. If you can just, when you walk out of your house, you leave it in your house and you go out and you, you give everybody the best representation of yourselves and, and pass that positivity on to them, them as best you can. I think that it would be, foolish to me to think that the business makes people commit suicide it's like again i'm no expert but i feel like mental illness and depression you know you don't hang yourself in a closet if you're of a sound mind you don't take a gun and point it at your face and pull the trigger if there isn't a voice in your head telling you to pull the trigger. Um, now, obviously, we've all known people who did bad things in their lives. Maybe they stole money and they went in the garage and they turned the car on and uh, and killed themselves because they didn't want to face the embarrassment of their family or, or they did something horrible and they, yeah, that happens. But for the most part in our business, when somebody takes their own life, um, 
it's self-inflicted by either depression, mental illness, or the off-balance reaction that certain substances that they put in their bodies have in their brains. Mine would be energy drinks. It's the only bad thing I'd take, Barry. Do you take five-hour negativity? Uh, uh, well, no, I'm a better man because of this podcast. I'm a better man. No, no, I mean, it helps to have someone of you, and, and once again, some comics are just sucking up to them. Why would you suck up to me? But I mean, I mean, that's just how this business is. What I mean, you suck up to people who can help you in some cases, but in this case, I tell you one thing: if I really spent the time with you, that I know that I could spend with somebody, I mean, you'd have an hour special in within a year if i could just gut it out with you and and work on every piece of material you had that would happen in a heartbeat if it isn't happening already how about comics unleashed with byron allen can, <laughs> can you hook that shit up i mean let's start low <laughs> if you don't have to start low you can sell that watch and shoot your own special well, I like to watch. I like to keep it. So that's why. I, call Byron Allen. Just text him right now. Byron Allen. I love Byron Allen. I'm the only manager that ever executive produced one of his television shows. I, I love. I mean, listen. The guy just bought the Weather Channel for $300 million. He's doing something right. I, I, next is the U-Log. Whatever. Barry, uh, I, I can't thank you enough. This is. I am so grateful for this. And I, I wanted to do something would you mind if i do one thing I, I, you have carte blanche with me let me just check the clock to make sure it's still running but please he's gonna do the pirouette again i might this is the most pirouettes i've ever done on a podcast okay we are good yeah we're at two hours and nine minutes this we're getting into the longest episode of all time but that's with the break no, I paused. Oh, okay. So the clock wasn't running. All right. You do whatever you want. I'm going to stand just because my body needs a little blood rush. Got it. Well, you know, with all that blood going to that large piece of anatomy, I can understand. I mean, listen, you got it. You got it. Now I know why girls are breaking up with you because they can't take the, uh, they can't take the pain. Well, um, the secret to pain is enjoying the pleasure it can bring you. <laughs> Please, continue on, Barry. I'll try to remember that. Anyway, so what I wanted to share with you was something that I think would be very helpful to, to people. Um, not just in the comedy profession, but in, in every profession. Because I think of how you started and how you were talking in the beginning of the podcast. And... I think that if if people would just do this exercise, I think it might really be helpful. So, Earl, I'll use you as the example. So, pretend that you have one day, okay, that you can work on yourself. This is a hypothetical situation. So, Of course. So, pretend you get to rent out a conference room that has a two-way mirror and a soundproof area where you're in the back watching, but no one knows you're there. And we invite 
two sets of people. The first set is everyone from your personal life, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, friends, girlfriends, boyfriends, girlfriends, girlfriends, all people who've touched your personal life, not business relationships. And the other side will be everybody who's touched your business life. The executives of Comedy Central, Jeff Ross, uh, the people at the animated show, The Jellies. Um, every single comedian that you've touched and you're, you know about who's dealt with you, worked with you, Rob Schneider. It could be anything having to do with business. Could be the pizza uh, owner when you worked the summer when you're 15. Okay. Barry Katz. Me. So you have these two groups of people. Okay. So in the morning, you take the personal people and you have them in there and you have somebody asking them questions. You're visualizing this and you're writing this down on a pad, what you visualize the answers to be. So the questions that they're asked is just one question each. Okay. And then a second question each. The first question for both parties in the morning and the afternoon is tell us 10 things, qualities about Earl Skakel that you love about him, that makes you love him, that makes you want to be around him, that makes you happy when he shows up. So your personal life and your business people. So there, all of these people are writing down 10 things, okay? Why they love working with you why they think you're great. What is it about you that makes you special? And so you're visualizing everybody writing these qualities down. Your personal life, well, he, he's honest, he's trustworthy, he's kind, he's funny. He works, uh, you, know, he, he, you know, he makes us feel great when he's around. He always helps out in the kitchen. He's a great mentor to his younger brother, whatever it might be. And in the workplace, well, he always works harder than everybody else. He prepares better. He, his performances are sound. He puts a lot of thought process in it. His jokes are well-constructed. Whatever it might be, he shows up early. And so you visualize all those answers, okay? And then you put them all together and you visualize what, after you put them all together, what somebody said the most about you. That's number one. What somebody said second most, that's number two. What somebody said third most, number three. Until you come up with 10 things on your pad that you visualize all these people said and it's the top 10 answers. So that's one list. That's your most positive qualities that you visualize people would say about you. We take a break for lunch, and in the afternoon, we ask these people the reverse question. What is it about Earl that lets you down? What is it about Earl that makes you unhappy? What is it about Earl, the qualities about him that make you not want to be around him, make you not feel good around him? What are the qualities about him that, in, in, in professionally, let's say now, we ask them, what are the qualities about Earl that make us not want to hire him, not want to give him 
the spots that we think he deserves? Why don't we do this for him? Why don't we want to hang out with him as comics and write a sitcom with him? Why don't we want to do a movie with him? Why don't we want to cast him in this? What is it about him that makes us feel like we don't want to rally around him? Okay? Personal life, professional life. Visualize the answers from all these people, the 10 answers they give all across the board. And then take the time in your house with no interruptions. Shut off your computer. Shut off your phone. Shut off everything. Don't look at anything and think about what these people would say about you and what the top 10 answers are. And then double check and triple check your work. Think, are you leaving something out that somebody would say positively or negatively? And now at the end of this exercise, as a stand-up comedian or whatever profession you're in, doesn't matter what it is, you have two of the most valuable tools in your life. The first list, the positive list of all the qualities that make you undeniable and blow people the fuck away and make them want to hire you and work with you. Visualize Rob Schneider, Jeffrey Ross, the jellies. Visualize the number one voiceover company in the world. These are the qualities that these people see in you. A hundred percent. That's your first list. Very valuable. Second list, you have all the things listed that make you unhirable, undesirable, unwantable, unlovable. Just everything on there that the reasons why Somebody would not want to work with you, hire you, give you a spot, give you a special, give you a TV set, whatever it might be. Okay. One to 10, you have that list over here. Very valuable. And so now you have these two tools. The first list, rinse, lather, repeat. Everything on that list, that's your that's your manifesto. That's your blueprint. That is everything that you need to get you where you want to go in life and in business. And the other list, everything, every single thing on that list, you never do as long as you fucking live again, personally or professionally. But that's up there and you see it and you never recreate any of that ever again. And if you follow that blueprint of staying with the things that work and burying for good the things that have taken you down and are like ankle weights, you will rise faster than you can ever imagine. And let me tell you something, Earl. You're going to have one of the greatest careers ever that you could ever have. You're already starting to have it, and it's only going to get bigger and better. And if you follow that formula, and if anybody out there follows that formula, I guarantee you, you can't help but be successful. Well, this might be the most valuable episode in the history 
of this podcast because part of the reason I do this, Barry, and you might not believe it after our first hour, I want to help other comics. You know, being nice and likable is a lot of the part of the success of this business. And I really hope every comic in LA listens to this podcast because Barry knows what he's talking about. There's nothing he hasn't done in this business that he hasn't wanted to do. So whether you are comic, open mic, or whatever level you're at, you can get something from this podcast. Barry also has a podcast, the industry standard, iTunes. Where else can they find it? Everywhere you Stitcher, want. Stitcher, along to SoundCloud. And I guarantee you that... Um... If you listen to the stories of these people on the podcast, if you can get past the sound of my voice, it'll change your life forever. Their stories are incredible from humble beginnings and how they all got to the top. It's it's truly amazing. I like your voice. It's kind of like that episode of the Brady Bunch when Peter Brady's voice was cracking. Can you get me a voiceover agent? I can, actually. Let me help you. <laughs> Uh, follow Barry on Twitter and Instagram. It's very simple at Barry Katz, and uh, you know it's it's a huge honor to have him on here because his history in comedy is he's helped shape the careers of Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle, Neil Brennan, uh, SNL alumni, uh, people who are on it now, Melissa Villasenor, uh, and he's like, you know, you've heard the phrase a comics comic. Uh, Barry is a comedy's manager comedy manager like he's who they all look up to controversial at times sure but you know what if you're not pissing off a few people along the way you're not trying very hard i hate to take a phrase from cat williams but i will i recently heard cat williams say if you have a ninth hater get a tenth so i kind of it's a little negative but i do understand what he was saying but uh barry cats should be a mentor to us all I'm going to forget and never bring up one night stand up again. Although I learned a very valuable lesson, taught me a lot. I always praise Comedy Central and Roast Battle for giving me my first TV appearances. I do appreciate that. And on that list of 10 things I need to not do again, it's bitterness is number one for me. Thank you, Comedy Central. Thank you, Viacom. Thank you, Jeff Ross. Thank you, Brian Moses. Thank you, Showtime. Thank you, Tyler, the creator. But most importantly today, a heartfelt thanks to the one, the only, Mr. Barry Katz. Thanks a lot, buddy. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. The honor was all mine, sir. Mr. Barry Katz. And I'm